Welcome to Tete a Tete, the Rice Architecture Podcast Series. I'm your host, Rose Wolkowski. Please enjoy this recording of the Lunchtime Response with Lars Larup and Aaron Betsky following Lars's farewell lecture. The response was held on April 5th, 2019 in Farish Gallery of Anderson Hall. Let's tune in. built into the Beaux-Arts tradition. It's also something that then um, Neil Levine picked up on when he was uh, working on the Beaux-Arts as well. And it's broadly speaking within the Beaux-Arts tradition, the difference between those people who concentrate on the partie, which is to say the overall organization of the plan, and those people who concentrate on the marche, on the movement through the building and the way you experience the building. So I've spun that out into a whole dialectic, and that's the dialectic not just between marsh and parti, but between narrative and understanding buildings, um, as you said, making buildings speak, we make buildings speak, finding within them uh, stories, narratives, um, and creating a coherence in architecture through that kind of a narrative system. Um, and then systems would be the reverse of that, starting with the grid, the durand précis, the notion that you just have a uh, completely preordained way of organizing things and conceptualizing things, concepts again, uh, that you use to take whatever the messy reality of the building of the world around it and you organize it within that. And the book I was going to originally write was about how those two came together in postmodernism, in the work of a number of people, such as uh, John Haydick, who obviously I think is a close relative, maybe a nephew, uncle, long-lost brother or something, of uh, Lars Lerup, um, Izusaki, um, Rossi, and a few other people. So you can also make that same distinction between those who are interested in the phenomena of the building and the way that when you experience a building it appears to you as a phenomenon and it's uh, the design is aimed at bringing out those features which trigger your recognition of its phenomenal presence as opposed to those people who see the building as an internally organized machine or mechanism whose bits and pieces articulate what has been generated from that internal working. You could even go further and talk about those people who see buildings as coming out of both the ground, the existing conditions, the available materials, and what's perhaps most important, out of history, out of precedent, out of vernacular, out of what has been there before, as opposed to those people who see buildings as promissory notes or building blocks for an unknown future, who understand the building as being a derivative, uh, made flesh version of some completely abstract concept of architecture that in its reality or totality can only exist in the future. And along with that is obviously also the notion that you can see architecture as a gathering together of what is already there uh, to find within it an existing order as opposed to the placing of buildings and things within an order. This is the Levi-Strauss uh, distinction between the magician and the scientist. Obviously, never a clear distinction, but that notion. And then finally, uh, even within architecture itself, it's those people who see architecture as a discipline as a particular way of understanding one's reality, one's world, one's past, one's being, uh, one's taste, and those people who see architecture as a profession, as a paid endeavor that needs to be productive, that needs to solve problems. And obviously that's what the AIA says architecture is. Um, there are other people who have a different understanding of, um, of architecture. Now, the easy 
choice, given this kind of very schematic division, uh, would be to place Lars resolutely in the first category, the categories of the magicians, the phenomenal people, the people who care more about walking through the building than the overall plan. I love the way that yesterday in his lecture, when he did do a six degree twist, was it a six degree twist of geometry? It had to be a six degree twist. That's what you did in those days, was a six degree twist. He treated it like a little joke, right? It was not a profound systematic operation. It was a, a wink at those people like Mr. Eisenman who think and can only think in terms of system. But of course, it's never quite that simple as having been brought up as a good Marxist and therefore a Hegelian, uh, I very well know, and so does Lars, that um, if you're going to have two, you need a third and you need an auf. So what that third is, um, has actually come into focus uh, since at least the second half of the 19th century, uh, since at least the work of John Ruskin, uh, since at least the emergence of the arts and crafts movement and the notion that architecture is a continual rebuilding of one's reality that also will reveal God's plan for the world, that also will create a community, that also will be a systematic alternative to uh, the discipline and create other means for creating architecture. And obviously, I live and work in an environment that came out of that world and that um, turned that into this notion of organic architecture in which the scientific and the poetic, as Frank Lloyd Wright might have said it, cannot be taken apart, but are in fact uh, two sides of the same coin. And the sort of Heideggerian idea of the challenging fourth dissolves into this veiling, and it's very interesting, it's a whole other book, is the notion of the veil in architecture, uh, that architecture becomes a kind of veil as he says in his Arts and Crafts and Machine, and as Heidegger also picks up on in, in several uh, ways. Obviously, this also is a form of looking at architecture that is very much related to myths, and to the notion that there is a particular way of understanding or describing or evoking our world that is neither purely descriptive and representational, nor is it completely fantasiful or made up, but in fact it's something about which you cannot say what it is. And uh, the, as the Greeks understood myths, they were events that may have occurred in the distant past, may occur in the future, may be occurring right now in some other realm. We just cannot know. It is that of, which, of whose reality we cannot know, and they even had a separate tense to describe that particular world. Um, it is obviously also the world of academia, which has become the mediator between the discipline and uh, the profession, and is something in which Lars has found himself. It's also very much the world of science fiction, which has become the dominant mode in which popular culture, general culture, reimagines our world, which contrary to its, which already in its name has that poetry and science combined, but con which contrary to its popular association, if you look at obviously any science fiction movie, what you're actually looking at is a kind of mythic world, a recreated world um, in Star Wars or any of these kind of films that might have occurred in the past, might be a version of what's happening today, or indeed might happen in some future. And I thought it was very interesting that uh, Lars kept referring to his work yesterday as uh, science fiction. Obviously, uh, the current hip and cool way to talk about all of that stuff is triple O, uh, is object-oriented ontology, which um, in fact is very close in many ways to what you were talking about, your continual referral to broken objects and to the fact that buildings and objects only appear when they're broken, not working, made me wonder whether um, Mr. Harmon has actually been cribbing his work from you all along. Um, it seemed like a straight take uh, off of that and a better reading of Heidegger he, than He Mr. barely Harman's. knows me. Well, that's what you think. 
Um, and obviously that assumes that you cannot talk about either architecture as coming out of a gathering together of what's there or a placing on out of an abstract system because we live in these giant hyper objects, uh, Timothy Morton, in which we cannot be sure where we are, what we're doing, who we are, where the building stops and starts. And obviously that's also a lot of Lars's work. And that is being taken forward now by a whole new group of uh, people um, the probably the best two books that I've seen about that um, have been the um, recent book that came out of a gathering of people uh, started in UCLA have now spread themselves all around uh, the the globe uh, called Possible Mediums and perhaps in a more coherent or more discursive sense uh, Andrew Atwood's uh, yeah, Andrew Atwood's uh, not interesting architecture which again, I think, uh, made one suspicious that people are reading Lars Lehr much more widely than even he might think. And what's especially interesting to me is the prevalence of uh, fairy tales as the preferred mode. It was very interesting. Uh, <clears throat> I blogged about this, but I went to uh, an event in Beijing where there was a whole bunch of architecture deans and heads. You were supposed to be there, but you bailed at the last minute. The sure, final reviews. sure, sure. <laughs> not important. Sure, sure. Uh, anyhow, the rest of us were there. Uh, and we were all sitting in the front row feeling very important and satisfied with ourselves as one does. I felt pretty good here. Okay, well, we were feeling good there. So uh, until the, uh, the current uh, curator of the uh, Guggenheim uh, architecture curator got up and lectured us all about how we were basically toast, we were completely over, uh, we were over the hill, no one cared about what we were doing. Uh, what students cared about today was uh, taking mushrooms, uh, ESP, and fairy tales. And I said, okay, I guess. And I went home and I told the story to my students and they all looked at each other and said, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's right, that's about, about right, that's what we're interested in. Uh, so I was a bit gobsmacked, gob, gobsmacked, gobsmacked. Um, but it made me realize that this, this has become uh, a real thing. Now, what is important about all of this, and I promise you I'm wrapping it up, uh, is that all of that, all of that third arena, that third way of looking, that third architecture, that third space perhaps even, um, is not possible if you remain within the confines of architecture as it is traditionally understood. And I'm not going to offer any definitions of what that might be, but any consensual notion of architecture will keep getting you stuck in the kind of dialectic I laid out at the beginning. And the only way to get out of it is to look, as I like to say, beyond architecture. And again, it was fantastic yesterday to understand that Lars's work is as much um, a, an understanding, a misreading and rereading of landscapes. It is an explosion and explosion of interiors. I was very tempted to do a slideshow of all the great Danish and, and Swedish interior painters of the 19th century, which again seemed to fit very much in the work obviously by literature and the kind of imaginative spaces that are created in literature uh, and then obviously in uh, science fiction. And I would say that Lars Lerup has been better than just about anyone and certainly better, the best since uh, both Haydick and Rossi left us at um, being the interpreter, uh, the fairy tale teller spinner of myths in that particular world with the understanding that I don't want to turn this into a kind of hero worship. Um, we've had enough of that for the last 24 hours or so. Uh, but I think it only would be possible and only works because of the particular arena in which uh, Lars has found himself, which is to say that I think that 
whoever and whatever Lars Lerup is would not be possible uh, without him having found first in California and then in at Rice and in Texas this particular uh, zoomorphic, zo zoohemic, all those other words that Sarah was quoting, uh, landscape, uh, the landscape of sprawl, of stim and dross, uh, this particular other space in which the traditional rules of architecture in fact do not apply. And as everyone uh, has, who Lars collected here has shown us, um, need a completely new dictionary and a new way of drawing and a new way of making it. Uh, I think that the, uh, the Houston School or the Rice School, which needs a good full PhD, which at one point brought together um, not just people who are still here, like Albert and Stephen and Carlos and all the other people who are here, uh, but also people have moved on since then, like Michael Bell, like Sanford Quinter, like Bruce Mao, and a number of other people, together really made uh, this Lerupian world that is a palimpsest uh, reconstruction of this world of Stim and Dross. And I think whatever is Lerupian still exists within that world, which also means that within this Lerupian vision, chaos, death, and as Lars indicated yesterday, mortality are never far away, which is something that Robert Venturley famously pointed out at the end of Complexity and Contradiction, uh, quoting August Hexler, where he said, it is the nearness to chaos, but its avoidance that gives force. And obviously, it is that nearness, not just to chaos, but to uh, dross, to the electric spike of adrenaline into the heart of the stim, the mortality that haunts, has haunted Lars and Lars's work at least since the 1980s, um, at least since the work uh, that I saw in the late 1980s and early 1990s, is a shadow, a specter, a ghost that haunts his architecture and I would say haunts this godforsaken world, um, and I use that term on purpose, especially with our moralist in chief so near to us at this very moment, um, that haunts this godforsaken world with a great deal of terrible force. And it was that terrible force, that sense that fairy tales don't necessarily have happy endings, and that the Rice School was never able, in fact, to come up with a way to address that world around us. And that we are eating ourselves and our world or our habitat, as Lars pointed out, that is the omnipresent and rather deadly force that still lies at the heart of Lars Lerup's always somewhat morbid personality. However, he saved us all yesterday, of course, by ending with a valedictory note, which I will copy here, that there is near to chaos that saving grace. And that saving grace, of course, is the realization of that mortality, that chaos itself, is that realization that is proper to the academy, that is proper to especially a place like Rice, that is the work that Lars has carried forward for so many decades now and will continue to carry forward now in Florida and that I think animates many of us in our belief that there still is something to be done that we might call architecture. Well, I'm overwhelmed, dazzled by your, first your erudition, 
or your capability of taking what we architects do and make an outline of it, the kind of structure that we can occupy. There's so many things that you say that um, stirs me and stirs me deeply because, you know, the morbidity shows up every morning when I have my morning <laughs> depression, uh, which I, I have, my wife knows it very well. She has none of that. She helps me to survive. But, um, um, you know, I have to be very personal to really tell how it all began. Uh, my mother was a very sick person. She had asthma that um, mm. myself a little bit here. She had asthma from age two and died when she was 46. But she manages to die every year and come back uh, to us, my father and I. And um, three months before she died, she said, uh, Lars, I've seen you come this far. I cannot live much longer. Three months later, she was dead. That left me with a legacy of um, the, uh, the death waiting. And it's interesting that I don't think I've ever really talked to myself about, I talk to myself often, I talk to my wife often about my experience and what uh, traces that has left on me. Uh, but it's interesting to see that I think you're right about that it hovers in the work. And it is a form of necessity for me to have it next to me when I talk about the work we do. Because it's ultimately that defining fact about us that we die. And that as a horde of people now occupying this world that we as a horde can die because what we are doing to our world has become absolutely uh, demanding in my way of looking at things which is which of course it always comes back to that but there is within this sort of maybe morose package lots of life lots of spirit, lots of experience. I've had the enormous luck to stump. It reminds me of the painter that said, I, I don't remember names anymore, he was painting and one day he slipped out of the frame and he never came back. He's the one that worked on the Getty Center that was beloved controversy. Anyhow, it happened to me the same thing. I, ha I, I had virtually zero education. I was not surrounded with anything but detective books that I still love uh, at home. And, and uh, when I, when I uh, uh, showed up at Berkeley, I realized that there was this fantastic world in front of me that I had never really touched. I was 26 years old. I had worked in offices. I loved working in offices. I, loved, I had very, very, interesting experiences in Sweden when I left the Navy. I was a frogman in the Navy, and there is where I developed claustrophobia. So, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm, I'm a slightly broken person in that sense. But in Sweden, it was fantastic. There was a time, there was a guy that, whose name is Harald Tabellin, never known, who invented a two-eyed perspective. He was the first, first real postmodernist. If you want to see the first postmodernist project, you have to go to Vorby Schirka in, in, in Stockholm, which is a truly amazing place that, that uh, we designed. I worked in his office. I was the only one with a salary. He couldn't pay himself. I slept under one of the tables and drew during the day, but I had to paint, we made lots of models, I had to paint the models. 
we did a pointillist church up somewhere. We did churchyards, all kinds of things. We did incredible, strange buildings that that uh, has never left me, that has never really been um, resurrected, so to say, in the public view. Everybody is, is excited about Leverance and Asplund, but not about Harald, who changed my life. Or Ingrid Tegner, for that matter, another man that paid my rent when it was very hard to get an apartment in Stockholm for all year. So I came from Bergman. My life was on my mother's come from a very distinguished family. I lived Bergman movies, like uh, you've seen them all. If you have, if you haven't, you should. Uh, it was crazy. My uncles and my grandfather was married five times. He he uh, he uh, uh, had I don't know forty children <laughs> that showed up at Christmas when he was he went bankrupt eight times. Uh, but when he showed up, when they showed up and he was uh, uh, solvent, it was a fantastic apartment in Gothenburg. And my grandpa went to bed and all the boys danced, danced jitterbug, which was hip at that time. And threw, they threw all the silver and the, the china around and the maids were like up in arms. It was just chaos. Just Bergman. And uh, Bergman is still there with me uh, every day, more or less. Um, uh, and uh, of course, people like Knusgaard, the Norwegian, that write about everyday life in such a spectacular way. These are, this is that, that northern, northern kind of strange forest, born in a forest. He talks about, put his finger on, on my fascination with Star Wars and all these myth great, great movies, you know, the, the guy with the feet, what is it called, the, 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 with the furry feet, what is it, living in, in underground, and, uh, what is the movie, uh, uh, no. No, you, you, you wouldn't know it. Chewbacca, no? No, oh, I love Chewbacca. <laughs> you know, that reminds me of Hayduck. Hayduck, Hayduck would review students. He would go, and everybody would say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and he would go on to the next one. Hayduck was spectacular. Uh, anyhow, uh, I taught with Bernard Chumi there because <laughs> the, the institute didn't pay me enough. From, but of course, Peter organized it, so we taught that. And I, I taught with Slutsky, fantastic painter and a fantastic teacher. And there was another painter who was a spe whose specialist was high-rise towers. And I realized that you didn't have to be an architect actually to be a very good critic. And that was very uh, important to me when I came to when I was at Berkeley. I took uh, what's called a, a special sociology uh, called interactionism. And this is a key, actually, because uh, the teacher, whose name again I forgot, he always said, when in doubt, go out and look. And that has always been my, my motto. When in doubt, go out and look. When perplexed, go out and look. So when I looked out my window in uh, 28th floor to write about Houston, that was precisely what it was. I sat there at the window and looked at Houston, and that's how I developed this vocabulary. The Zoemic uh, uh, canopy was actually uh, Quinter, Quinters, who was very upset. He was, Quinter is probably the best uh, uh, editor uh, I, I've seen, although I've seen some others too now lately that are very good. But he would say, ah, oh, swamming, swamming, swamming. You know, he always had a, ha a hair problem, <laughs> poor Quinter. So he, he had to do this, and he said, swamming, swamming. So the swamming canopy is his. But all, 
and you know, the, the mega shape and all that stuff, the stim and dross. Stim and dross comes from uh, uh, science fiction. Mona uh, Lisa Overdrive, I yeah. think the book yeah. is. And, and it was, uh, and of course it was German, uh, Sturm und Drang. Stim and dross rhyme with that. Sturm und Drang is, is uh, storm and Drang is, is melancholy. Is that correct? So um, that with, with an impulse, yeah, so, yeah. so primeval and that, impulse. That takes me to Goethe and the third. Goethe, of course, wrote a beautiful book. Uh, it's called Italienische Reise, Italian uh, Journey. And he said, when he came to see Palladio, he said, I encountered Palladio, and I realized, and I realized that between columns and walls, he had produced a third. So this, of course, is the key to my argument that here is that blind, mute operation that we call architecture. Sitting, when Goethe, the poet, enters, he sees a third, which is the space that he constructs from those pieces that he is offered. That, to me, of course, was the key to autonomy. That Eisenman and all those guys, they talked about autonomy for slightly different reasons. Why mine, they, they, they forced architecture to be autonomous so they didn't have to deal with anybody interested in how it worked. Mine was that I found that architecture is autonomous. That's quite different. That was, again, going out and looking. That, to me, and of course it is often anathematic to, to all these people who want architecture to speak. And you speak through education. Goethe was highly educated. He saw something that we others had, that you don't necessarily see if you're not educated. So it all hangs together that way. And um, that I am counted into this amazing array that you laid out is not only flattering, it's slightly daunting, because uh, I'm, I, I'm, a I'm a good forensics person. Send me out to find who is the murderer, I can do that. And then I make a pie out of that, and that's what I've done. I don't really, I don't have that capacity, for example. I can't place myself, I don't know. I've always, you know, my wife introduced me as an architect, and I said, no, no, I'm not an architect, I'm a writer. Well, that's of course not quite true. She's right, I'm an architect, first and foremost. It's just that, for me, it is the discipline, not the profession. I love the profession. I have tremendous respect for, for professionals. I do not expect them to <clears throat> listen to me and apply what I say in any way. Architecture has its own agency that's very powerful. Building is a spectacular thing. I love to build. I wish I had had more chance to do it. But uh, when you are a, a thirsty mind for information, so here, here's an example of you say misreading, which is absolutely right. I I I had I've been reading Deleuze a lot, and then my wonderful son goes to Cambridge in England and gets a, a PhD in French philosophy with specialties like um, Deleuze and so on. So I, I talked to him over the phone, mostly how we And he said, that's completely wrong. That's not what he says. So that was very sobering for five minutes. And then I said, I don't care. Because, I mean, it's not that I believe these guys, it is they inspire me. They, they make, they help me put fuel in my agency. So I'm a, when I say I'm not an academic, it's truly true. My old friend Krieger, 
who was an astrophysicist and became a teacher and a philosopher, said to me, Lars, you'll never become a philosopher. I was very offended for several weeks. I'm no longer offended. <laughs> it, it, you know, you, if, you have, if you have, like my lucky son has a drive, it, is, it never stops if you're lucky. If you can deal with your physical ailments when you get old, your drive is the key to eternal happiness before it comes down to you. And with people like Aaron, who I got to know in Los Angeles, I think, right? I saw this young guy that everybody was critical of. <laughs> and he was a pain in the ass, and he was this and that. So immediately I, I said, he must be okay. Uh, because I have always, uh, always liked the oddballs. I even liked Moss. I thought Moss was a great architect. He never thought that I was serious, but you know. Anyhow, Sci-Archive had a, was very important. New York or, or LA was very important to me. I am, I'm an old friend of Tom Maine's. Tom Maine was angry for years and could not speak. He was literally <laughs> like this. And then suddenly one day, he speaks beautifully and he gives great lectures these days. And uh, he has switched back to Sciarc, where he really began. The old Sciarc uh, was a fantastic place. So, anyhow, Aaron, uh, have, I have followed. I read him uh, every time he writes something. Uh, I haven't read that blue book, which I will. Um, he's he's uh, he's been. I have increasingly, I have seen a person who has grown from a gadfly to a real serious intellectual with a historical scope over what we do as architects that is dazzling and important. And I hope that his project at Taliesin works. I mean, after all, it is a tough project uh, because it's, it, it's still like Sciarc like or, or AA in New York, in, in London. When I taught with Peter Wilson and Saha was there, and, uh, it was a grand moment. They don't last forever, unfortunately. That's the way it is. I was so lucky to be with uh, the whole crew at, at the Institute. I've been a very lucky guy. And I haven't really... Sad ending. <laughs> so it's a little strange for me to be in focus, <laughs> to be in the focus. It's been rather shocking for me uh, since, since um, and apparently I can still lecture the way I used to. I, I have my doubts because I feel I've felt a little under the weather lately. But I managed to pump it up yesterday. I'm, I'm glad that it seemed like they have succeeded. The evening was tear-wrenching <laughs> for me, because all my friends spoke up and said nice things. And it's when we, when uh, I think we did a brilliant move bringing Aaron, because he's very nice. And he's a very good guy. <laughs> all right, all right. And so I have one question for you. Well, thank you, doctor. I have one question. Um, since you're such a good forensic guy, who is the murderer? Who is the You know, I had this idea. The murderer. I had this idea of writing a murder mystery where we kill Isenma. <laughs> <laughs> but I... There'd I, be too many candidates for that. Well, that's what made it sort of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I must say, you know, I am, uh, it's, although I spent two years in the Swedish Navy, and I, I, love, I love the Navy, despite my claustrophobia, we hadn't had war since 1805, so that was not part of the thing. But I am not a violent person, 
and I, I, I don't, I don't believe in violence. I'm, uh, you know, I grew up with lots of guns because my father was a hunter. I shot the squirrel at 14. I cried for three weeks. <laughs> but I must say that I have had murderous thoughts lately. Uh, they have been directed towards a city that I will not mention. It starts with a W, up the coast uh, on, from, from Florida. And occasionally, uh, it can against, happens down not so far from me. But I've had those thoughts, I must admit. Because I think that, and of course, this buys, in, buys to into my agenda that it's, we are close to death, that we are really, we, we are really in an interesting place. And of course, this guy is going to be re-elected. Re, uh, it's very clear. And uh, we're going to be driven into the ground even further. Maybe we needed to wake up. Maybe that would help us to realize that we are in deep shit and that we need to do something. That map of New Orleans with a Corps of Engineers, I've always had, you know, the, since, since I was a civil engineer, uh, when, I, when I went to the to, to services. They wanted me basically in the engineering operation and I said no, I want to go to the Navy because that's where I belong. I'm a Navy guy. That's, that's, that's my ball. But they are the nasties. They are arrogant. You can never, uh, I've, we, uh, Joe Powell and I have dealt a lot with, with, with the services and they are very full of themselves. They're always right. And it's just it's something about that attitude that is disastrous. It, it exists in building industry, it exists in many places. It's relentless, I am right, in, there's no doubt, this is how we're gonna do it. I'm very skeptical about that. I really think we have to modify our, our agency. Our agency has to be much more sensitive to its surrounding. It has to pay attention. It has to be willing to stop. It has to have a time out occasionally where you, where you reflect on what you have done and where you're heading. Because all we know is the here and now. We know nothing about the future. And we have to realize what Rem said something wise. He said, our buildings have two lives, one before until they're constructed and one afterwards. We architects have, pay, have paid very little attention to the, the after. But we have, or well, attention we have paid, we have spent too much time there with the users. We sp should spend more time with the buildings. We should look at them, what happens to them. When, when I mean, t think of something like Pantheon that has lasted so long. It was the longest span until 19, 20-something, that ever existed, 65 meters, fantastic. That building was built with an intelligence. If you look at the, the Germans have done a fantastic forensic analysis of the material in, in the section. And it's changing every two meters with a mixture. They had an understanding of dealing with material that we have lost. Now we all have, it's like going to the doctors that doesn't take, put your hands on it. It just looks at the screen and looks at your data. It's extremely problematic in my view. I think we really, that's why the building workshop is so important. You have to have a broken thumb now in order to understand what it is, that, that, to, to get to the materiality. Because that's to me, you know, I, I, you know, I, I'm a, I give sermons and I never stop it. So, um, the, I'll try one more time and then, and I'm saying this so that people can prepare their questions. Um, so I'll, I'll try one more follow-up on that, which is that what is, what I meant by that question was... I know that was not what you meant. You never have identified a murderer, which other were, in other words, what is missing from all of your fairy tales and stories is the ogre, the bad guy, the even Hadek had the had Medusa, right? Front and center. Their evil was identified. 
Um, you, whether it's in a theoretical, theoretical level, because you're very careful in books like Simon Dross not to talk about Dross as evil, um, you talk about it as necessary, um, you've never let the monsters out of the cage. You've never made them part of what you're doing. And it makes me wonder, are, is the murderer the building? Is the murderer something too personal to talk about? Is the murderer the uselessness of architecture itself? Who, who is the murderer? Is it Peter Eisenman, quite simply? It's very simple. Okay. Have you watched a, a detective movie lately? Uh, yeah. When did it stop to be interesting? When did they stop to be When does a movie stop to be interesting? When you know who the murderer is. Not true anymore. Uh, absolutely, it's still true. In other words, I have absolutely no interest in finding the murderer. Okay, good answer. Because, I mean, if the closest I can come is that we are the murderer. We, the humans, because we never paid enough attention to the animals, we never paid enough attention to the materials, we used everything for our own benefit. And it's over if we want to survive. So that means that if we stop our murderer's intention, we can still save ourselves. We save ourselves by surviving. Now, I thought that was the, your opening salvo, essentially, that the, the world is going to go on. Without us, we're just going to extinguish ourselves. Right? Um, and so I, I actually did think you made it pretty clear that it's a collective uh, murderous act. Suicide. Uh, and it, which, which I think is is a, a profound way of noting how uh, you know how it behooves us. I get to use my favorite word again today uh, to to pay attention to that and figure out if there's some possibility of making a change. But I think that that was a very moving way of setting out you know your retrospective, but also I guess fairy tale, science fiction, myth. I would, I would argue with Aaron that those aren't the same thing and that, that parsing that would take us far too long, yeah. but I think that, that that's, the, uh, that's a very productive territory for all of us. But if you think about our existence as a form of myth, as a, as a form of fairy tale, because it was a fairy tale where we thought that we could use everything that was offered to us and to our own benefit. And that fairy tale, like all fairy tales, ends. But we have maybe figured we have maybe figured out for the first time that we can push. It's like I push my retirement five years ahead until I croak. <laughs> uh, and and that it's a bit like that. You push it ahead of you. And that seems to me that uh, Morton, I think was the, fir the first one that said that we, there is no, we, we can't fix this, it's too late. And I think that is in some sense a very important to understand and realize that it's still worth pursuing it. You know? It's still worth trying to make it better. So when I, every time I see a building that's built out of wood and it's stretched to 10 floors, I applaud and say, how wonderful. And you know, since I've spent a lot of time in Switzerland, I've been in houses that are full of wood. I owned a house in an island uh, in Sweden that was wood and glass, nothing else. They're fantastic. Wood buildings are amazing. They speak to you because they're, they're energy containers. They vibrate, literally with the weather. They heat up during the day, and then they make <coughs> at night when they cool off. You know, this stuff is sort of alive. And the Triple O guys, who I have, of course, spent a 
lot of time reading it, and I don't, I don't read them anymore because they're old hat, in my view. But uh, so fast. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, they're okay. It's about time because that's where it's, it's somewhere there. And that's another problem I have. I don't, ri ri I don't have a, I don't know how we do this, really. I don't know how we stop using these things because the water in the taps are shit, is shitty. So we have to have this, and this costs as much as gas. I remember when America, where you could buy a six pack of beer for 39 cents, and the gas was 39 cents a gallon. Hey. Florida. We're, we're, speaking of fairy tales, we're about to hit the bewitching hour of one o'clock, which <laughs> is when everyone disappears, because <laughs> that's when studios start. Um, I don't know if there are any um, audience questions that can come in under four minutes, uh, but uh, if there are, this is the moment to put them forth. Otherwise, may the force be with you. <laughs> <laughs> I will come back to Houston with my wife because we have very close friends here uh, around New Year's time for hopefully many years to come. So uh, school people will be closed, but you can always come and have a drink with me. Cheers. Thank you. For more information on Lars Lerup and Aaron Vetsky, visit the Past Events tab on the Rice Architecture website. Don't forget to subscribe to our page on SoundCloud to keep up with new releases. I'm your host, Rose Wolkowski, and this has been Tete a Tete.